Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, James Mitter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Michael Langmeyer, who's the Associate Director of the Center. We're going to review the results from the November Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspectives on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 14th through the 18th of November. That was the week following the November elections. So the Ag Economy Barometer didn't change. The index value this month was 102, same as last month. Uh, that still leaves the index, though, down significantly compared to where it was a year ago. A year ago, it was 12% higher than that, so uh, which is a reading of about, I think, 116. Um, and if you look at the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations, there was a little bit of movement there. The index of current conditions, I think, was down three points compared to last month to a reading of 98. Uh, but that leaves that index 23% lower than a year ago. Future expectation index actually rose a little bit, uh, I think up two points compared to last month. And that still leaves that index lower than last year, but not that much, just 5% lower than last year. Um, you know, Michael, we were talking about this before we started recording the podcast. I think we both feel probably about the same way. There hasn't been a lot of underlying change in the ag economy since we did the last survey, and, and maybe we're sort of picking that up with uh, these results. You, do you agree? Yeah, really. The the index has been relatively low the last several months and relatively flat uh, the last several months. And I just think that reflects that some of the concerns that we're going to talk about here in a little bit have been the same. They, they remain the same. Uh, this 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 uh, this worry about in, input costs in particular is just there, uh, and it's not going away way anytime soon, and I think that's reflected uh, in, in the uh, uh, the Ag Economy Barometer Index and the Index of Current Conditions and Future Expectations. Yeah, if there was a little bit of a surprise, it, to me it was the Current Conditions Index, and it was down three points, and from a, statist a statistical perspective, that's really no not, not significant. But if anything, I would have expected maybe a modest improvement given where we were at with respect to fall harvest and positive yield reports in many locations, good revenues, et cetera. And we're simply not picking that up, right? We're not we're not getting that increase in optimism. Yeah, when I look at 22 net return net returns compared to 23 net returns, I think 22 net returns are going to be very good compared to 23, and we're just not picking that up uh, in in the indices. Now there was a little bit of an improvement, and that was in the Farm Financial Performance Index. Um, that was up five points. Again, that's not a big movement in that index. Uh, that does leave it. Uh, what, I think 14% lower than it was this time last year. This time last year, that index was sitting at about 106. So we're down about 15 points. Um, the improvement is maybe a little bit expected. I mean, that's that's consistent with my expectations with respect to uh, the improvement in crop income that was showing up this fall. But again, it's not a real positive number and certainly not as good as what we were looking at this time last year, right? And a thing that's going to be really interesting here is moving ahead to January and February and see see what they think about 23 compared to 22. Uh, it's, it's not surprising to me that 22 is is not as good as 21 uh, when, you, when you create this Farm Financial Performance Index. They're both good years, but uh, 21 was exceptionally good. And so uh, it's about where I expect it to be right now, but I'm really curious uh, to see what's going to happen uh, when we get into January and February. Yeah, that's a good point to make because when this index, the question this index is based on, when we transitioned from December of 21 to January of 22, the index dropped quite a bit 
But part of that was because of the change in the comparison when people were all of a sudden comparing 22 to 21 uh, instead of comparing 21 to 2020. Um, we've been asking this question now going back to July, looking ahead to next year. What are your biggest concerns for your farming operation? And it's been consistent every time we've asked it. The number one concern is higher input cost. Uh, number two in the list is rising interest rates. And that wasn't true in the very beginning when we first asked this question. But still, it's uh, maybe it didn't change much this, this month compared to last month. If I had to guess, I think we're going to see that become more important as we continue to ask this question across the winter and into the spring of 23. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And then we continue to get a lot of concern about availability of inputs. Uh, it's been very consistent since we started asking this question. Uh, between 12 and 15 percent of the respondents tell us that one of their biggest concerns is availability of inputs. This month it was 14 percent. That's very close to last month. Last month was 13. The month before that was 14. So it, it bounces around one or two points, but pretty consistent. And um, the more traditional concern that you would expect people to express, which is concern about lower crop and or livestock prices, is essentially running about the same as concern about availability of inputs. And, and Michael, I would contend that if we think about the long term and, you know, thinking about maybe the, the course of our two careers going back into the 80s, this is very unusual to see about the same level of concern with respect to lower crop or livestock prices and availability of inputs. Uh, we don't have data to support that for the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s, but I suspect there are very, very few times in the last few decades when those two concerns were of equal magnitude. Yeah, I, I would think if you go back in time pre-COVID, you wouldn't have seen any uh, period like that, or, or or if it was, it was a very short period of time, uh, unlike what we're seeing now. And, and a couple of things I find very interesting about this question is, and I mentioned this last month, uh, over 75% of the concern is related to inputs. That's also very unusual uh, if, we, if we would ask this, I wish we'd asked this question back in 18 and 19, because that's seems to me to be very unusual that there's that much concern uh, related to inputs, and it's all related to the to the high input costs that we currently have. Also, government payments were not uh, were not that large uh, compared to 2020 and 2021 and 2022. Uh, those that are indicating uh, policy concerns is less than 10 percent uh, if you add up both environmental policy and farm policy. So that's a very small percentage that are worried about policy right now. Yeah, especially when you express it as farm policy. That's And I think that's a reflection of the fact that that's not been a significant source of income the last couple of years, and people simply have kind of put it a little bit on the back burner. But that could become an issue again here in the near future. Yeah, definitely. As we move forward and we get a new farm bill, that could, that could increase rather substantially. Um, we continue to ask people about their expectations for crop input prices for the 23 crop compared to the 22 crop. And I think people have kind of started to center on one to nine percent increase. I think this month, 38 percent of the people in the survey said that was what they expected to see. Last month, I think it was about 43 or 44 percent said they expected to see a one to nine percent increase. But the interesting thing to me is we continue to get a relatively large number of people at the two tails. And the tails on our survey are a group of people who expect to see an input price decline of up to 10%. This month, 8% of the people in the survey said they think input prices are going to decline up to 10%. And on the other end, we had about 9% of the people in the survey, and that's been consistent now for several months in a row, 
who expect to see input prices rise 20% or more in 2023. And again, a little bit like you were talking about with respect to inputs earlier, Michael, the dispersion is, is quite large, and I don't think in a more typical environment or more typical time frame, we would see that kind of disparity in expectations. Yeah, that just it just shows me that that uh, people just have no clue or no idea where these inputs are heading, and 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 in this uh, this economy, this ag economy, and this general economy, it is difficult uh, to try to project where 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 input costs are going. And another thing I find interesting is there about there's about 30 percent that said either zero percent or a negative negative one to 10 percent. That to me would be going back to more of a normal situation. So there is a pretty uh, pretty large chunk of people there, 30 uh, percent. Uh, they think maybe we're going to return uh, back to uh, back to uh, historical averages uh, in terms of input prices, and so there is some some people that are optimistic with regard to input costs. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I suspect, particularly the group that thinks we're going to see input prices decline by up to 10 percent, could be disappointed. I think so too. Um, Farm capital investment index continues to be very weak this month. It matched its previous all-time low with a reading of 31. Um, the index is down dramatically compared to, especially, it's down compared to a year ago. A year ago it was at 39, but it's especially down when you go back into the late 2020 timeframe. Um, that index was up over 90 for a short period of time. So when you think about it from that standpoint, we've been experiencing kind of a long-term decline in that farm capital investment index. And it's in a time frame when farm machinery sales sales have been pretty strong. I mean, if you look at tractor sales, you look at combine sales, uh, they've been strong. Uh, Deer came out with an announcement here just a week or so ago saying that they expect to see uh, uh, very strong sales in 2023 based on a strong order book. So there's continues to be this dilemma about why is this capital investment index, which is based on a question that says, do you think now is a good time or a bad time to make large investments in your farming operation? You know, why are we getting such negative responses to that? So, you know, going back to July, we started asking a follow-up question, which says, uh, if, you, if you say that it's a bad time to make large investments, why do you feel that way? And every time we've asked it, and it's, I think this is the fifth time we've asked this question, we get between 40 and 50% of the people in the survey tell us it's a bad time because of the increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction. So I think what's going on is this isn't quite the proxy for are you going to go out and buy a combine or you'll go out and buy a tractor. It's more like I might buy one but I don't feel good about it because I can't get a good deal. You agree? I think that's a very accurate statement. And we, we did we do have uh, rising interest rates in, in this uh, question, too. And that's about 20 percent of the people are, are worried about rising interest rates. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of interesting. And that hasn't really changed too much. Um, and of course, this is a short uh, time frame. We just went back to July. I kind of wish we had been asking this question longer term uh, so we'd have a little better read on that. My guess is that interest rate component is going to go up as we head through 2023 but we'll see how that shakes out. But, you know, if you look at the uh, USDA's uh, machinery cost index, it has gone up so much more rapidly than, for example, consumer inflation. Uh, I think this is a reflection of what we're picking up. People are really concerned about the fact these prices have gone up so, so sharply. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's more than double. Yeah, so um, the Follow-up question is, we asked people about their plans for farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to a year ago. We historically have always gotten sort of what I'd characterize as negative responses to this. Um, 
So I'm going to focus on the people who say they plan to reduce their, their purchases in the upcoming year and, and give it a positive twist because if you compare the responses we've gotten this month and last month, maybe the month or so before that, the percentage saying they're going to reduce their purchases is lower than it was earlier in 2022, um, which could indicate maybe a little more interest in, in making some purchases and maybe a little more positivity out there. Uh, the percentage of people saying they're going to keep it about the same has been rising as that percentage of uh, folks saying they're going to reduce it has come down. We are not picking up a big rise in percentage of people saying they're going to increase their purchases. We did pick up a little of that in late 20, uh, the very beginning of 21, but uh, we we're certainly aren't getting that today. Farmland, short-term farmland value expectation index dropped four points to a reading of 129 versus 133. And again, from a statistical perspective, there's really probably no difference in, the, in that reading. Um, that index, though, is down 18% compared to a year ago. And the long-term index, which is based on a question that says, what do you think is going to happen to farmland values in the next five years, held constant at 144. That index is down compared to a year ago as well, but not as much, down 9%. And Michael, these are not very positive numbers compared to where this index was a year ago, uh, whether I look at the short-term or the long-term index. Yet every day or every week, we hear about a new record high on a farmland sale somewhere. So how do you, how do we reconcile that? This is very difficult. One thing that one thing that I did, did want to point out here is the, is the long-term farmland value expectation index is, is less volatile than the short-term as you'd expect. And so we did see more movement in the short-term, uh, you know, coming out of COVID, uh, you know, for example, uh, compared to the long-term. Uh, but that, as you indicated, that it is lower today uh, than what it was a year ago. And I think that's just reflecting that the fundamentals have changed, uh, at least I think some of that's uh, being reflected in this in this short-term index. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at net, net net income prospects, I don't think they're near as good looking into 23 and 24 as they have been for the last couple of years. And so, uh, certainly the net returns don't look as good, uh, particularly for you know for you're an operator looking at buying land. But the interest rates uh, interest rates are up substantially uh, you know this year compared to where they were uh, you know prior to this year. And I think that's also a uh, fundamental that's working against uh, continued increases in land values. I'm a little surprised that, that those factors have, aren't having a bigger impact, uh, but, but I, I, I do think part of the reason why we've seen a tapering off here is those two factors. Now, obviously, we have some positive factors still impacting the land values, inflation. Uh, uh, land is a good inflation hedge, and so inflation, as long as we have high inflation, that helps support land values, uh, but also the non-farm investor demand is still pretty solid, uh, and so that's also a positive factor impacting land values. And so when you look at land values, you've got positive and negative factors, whereas you go back a year or two and all, most factors are positive. So listeners are probably wondering what we think is going to happen to land values over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And I, I spoke to a group of uh, uh, bankers yesterday and I kind of stuck my neck out. I want to see if you agree. I said that by the time we get to 2024, I think we're going to see land values start to back off. Stated another way, I think we're either at or very near 
the peak in land values. I think I think that's definitely the case, and, if, and to the extent that they do increase in 23, it 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 will re reflect inflation. Uh, from an inflation-adjusted standpoint, we might actually see a slight decline uh, in land values in 23 if inflation stays up there five to ten percent. I, th I think we're looking at a fairly small nominal increase in land values in 23, and then as we move to 24, if if margins are as tight as what they appear like they're going to be, I, I think you're 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 looking at perhaps actually some uh, uh, you know uh, declines. You, you had trouble saying that. I could I could tell, but yeah, I had hard trouble getting that out. And then the main reason why I say that is is I again I'm concerned about the higher interest rates. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the land value increases we've saw since 2007 were, were were largely due to very very low interest rates. Historically low interest rates. We're not in that environment anymore, and I don't think we're going to go back to that environment anytime soon uh, where we see those interest rates really low uh, compared to the historical numbers. I, I, I don't think we're going to go back to what, what we were in the, in the 80s by any stretch, but I think uh, interest rates are going to, are going to be higher uh, than what they were from 2007 to 2019 for the foreseeable future. And so that's why, that's why I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, when I look at land values in 24. Yeah, so that was kind of a long-winded uh, way of saying what I'm going to say, which is my expectation for land values topping out in 23 is really pretty heavily contingent on just two factors, tightening of crop margins and rising interest rates. And like you, I don't see interest rates really backing off appreciably in 23. So I think that's going to come home to roost by the end of 23, and if not the end of 23, certainly as we move into 24. But uh, time will tell, right? We'll see how that shakes out. Um, Follow-up question we've been asking all through 2022 is, what is the main reason you expect farmland values to rise? And this question only goes to people who say they expect to see farmland values increase over the next five years. And as you indicated, Michael, um, number one is in the list continues to be non-farm investor demand. Number two in the list continues to be inflation. So those are the two drivers people are kind of focused on here. Um, it remains to be seen how it's going to shake out and how, how strong that non-farm investor demand is really going to be in, in 2023. So we've got several questions that we've asked uh, as kind of follow-ups towards the end of the survey to learn a little bit more about where people stand from a policy standpoint. And the first one is one we asked last month. We asked it again this month. How effective are the current ARC County and PLC Farm Bill programs at providing producers with a financial safety net? And the results didn't change a lot, but they did change a little bit from October to November. We did pick up an increase in people saying the programs are not effective. October it was 28%, this month it was 38%. You put those two together, you're basically going to wind up and saying roughly a third of the people in the survey across those two months says uh, Arc County and PLC have not been very effective in terms of providing a financial safety net. Um, on the very effective side, that didn't change much. In October, it was 11% rated it that way. 8% said that in uh, November. So again, you average those two together, you're probably at about between 9 and 10%. Um, I don't think there's any big surprise there, right, given where those uh, prices are in the, in for our county and PLC, right? We haven't had payments for a couple years for a lot of the crops in two or three years, and so I think that's that factors into that not effective. Uh, but also, if you look at the reference prices for PLC, I mean, this is one of the big debates heading into the next farm bill. If we keep something like the PLC, 370 corn, I mean, that's that's really low, and so I think that's also being reflected in that question. So, yeah, I think a good way to think about that 370 corn is to think about the budgets that you've been cranking out. 
and your expectation for average productivity, full cost of production, which means that you're providing a return for all the owned assets. Uh, tell us what that number was, Michael. You just updated that here a couple weeks ago. That's $6, and, and, and every time I update, it seems to climb a little higher, and so that, that's really concerning. So that comparison tells the whole story. 370 PLC number versus a $6 break-even. The next question we asked, uh, again, in October and again in November, how effective is the current crop insurance program at providing producers with a financial safety net? And we did see a little change here. Um, the not effective category changed. Not effective in October was only 16%. Now, that came up to 24% in November. That was maybe a little bit of a surprise. Um, and the very effective category stayed about the same. So the movement was really in the people saying somewhat effective. So it wasn't it wasn't like they sh jumped from not effective to very effective or vice versa, right? So it wasn't a huge shift, but still a little bit of a shift. This one surprised me a little bit. I, I thought there would be a, a pretty large percentage that said non-effective for the Arc County and PLC for the reasons we discussed, but I thought the percentage that said non-effective for crop insurance would be lower than 20%. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts were uh, about that question, but I thought it'd be lower than that. Why do you say that? Uh, well, if you look at the, the, the Revenue Protection Program, for example, I mean, it, it, it does a pretty good job of, of protecting against price declines and, and yield declines. I mean, it doesn't eliminate all the downside risk, but it really does chop off downside risk, uh, you know, quite effectively. And so that's where I'm coming from on that. So, yeah, so I guess one, I think what you're saying is apparently we're picking up some concerns from people about the fact that crop insurance isn't very good at if, uh, providing um, what is sometimes referred to as the shallow loss protection. Yes. Uh, and uh, that's presumably maybe why those folks are saying that. They might also be saying it because in some locales, depending on where you're at, the premiums might be perceived yeah. as too high, right? Yeah. Um, which gives me a thought for a new question. Maybe we should do the follow-up there. I think this question warrants some additional analysis in future, sur in future uh, surveys. I think we need more information about particularly those folks that said it's not effective to learn why, why they're saying that, because I don't think we know. Uh, which this, The next question was, uh, this was new this month, at least. We asked a version of this uh, in October, and we changed the responses a little bit because we realized we omitted a category, so it's, in that context, brand new. Which of the following policies or programs will be most important to my farm in the next five years? And the choices we gave people, uh, and for a phone survey, this is getting to be a lot of choices. Uh, so as, you, as you're thinking about it, you're going to think, well, maybe, you, you know, you, you've, we left out a choice. Well, it, it's partly because it's a phone survey, and you can't have too many choices on a phone survey. But uh, we, we, the choices we gave them were climate policy, conservation policy, crop insurance program, environmental policy, interest rate policy, and then the category that we didn't include last month but we did put in this month is energy policy. And I'm glad we did because roughly a fifth, 22% of the people in the survey chose energy policy. The top choice was interest rate policy, and uh, that's interesting that people are, I mean, that, that tells you right off the top that people are worried about what, what's taking place with respect to interest rates, which is not surprising. Agriculture is a very capital-intensive industry, so given that perspective, people are worried about the cost of borrowing money, but energy policy, 22%, I suspect like some of the other questions we were talking about earlier with respect to inputs, Michael, that's a reflection of the times we live in. I don't think we've, that's not a consistent kind of a response. Do you, you agree? 
Yeah, and going back to that energy policy, what's really concerning here is the price of the machinery itself is relatively high, but the costs associated with running the machinery have increased rather dramatically. And, and you know, repairs, for example, fuel prices, diesel in particular, uh, they're relatively high right now. And so, you know, being in a capital-intensive business, uh, they go, you go back to their biggest concern being input costs, you, you can see why. Relatively high. That was a very conservative statement, Michael. Very high. I should say very high. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I was uh, driving home yesterday from the office here, uh, I noticed that locally at retail, diesel was a dollar ninety higher than gasoline. I'm going to say that again. Diesel was a dollar ninety higher than gasoline. The spread has been incredible, uh, and obviously that reflects the taxable uh, fuel. But clearly, um, we're seeing comparable increases at the farm level. Those kind of spreads are unheard of. Yes, they are. So we did a couple of new questions this month. Have you made any changes on your farm in response to the rise in energy prices? Um, we had no idea how this would, people would respond to this. Uh, we got uh, roughly a fourth, 27%, said, yeah, well, they've made some kind of a change in response to rising energy prices. 73% said no. If you said yes, we followed up and asked what changes, if any, have you made in response to the rise in energy prices? And again, we had to do some buckets here to make this tractable in terms of analyzing it, but the choices we gave were reduced crop drying, reduced tillage, adopted or increased usage of no-till planting, reduced nitrogen rates and or change application timing, and then the ubiquitous other category. And the top choice was reduced tillage, right? Um, people were maybe thinking about some of the tillage they've been doing and saying, maybe I don't need that extra pass, uh, I suspect is, is what was going on. Uh, reduced nitrogen rates and or change in application timing and the other category came in tied at 24%. And then um, no-till planting was 11%, reduced crop drying was just 8%. And I have to say, I was a little surprised at the reduced crop drying, and I didn't have a firm expectation of what that number might be. I did notice, just traveling around the Midwest uh, this fall, at least it, it appeared to me that people were leaving corn out in the field maybe a little bit longer and attempting to do a little more field drying. And I certainly picked up that comment from producers. I don't know. How about you, Michael? Yeah, and we have a lot of buckets here. And so we probably have some folks that did multiple uh, of these or all four uh, for that matter, or, or at least three. I mean, it's hard to do reduced till and no till, but uh, at least three of those. And so I think that's part of what's going on. Yeah. So people are changing their management style and they're looking for every opportunity to reduce fuel usage, right? And, and uh, that's being reflected in, across natural gas, it's being reflected across nitrogen, of course, and it's being reflected with respect to diesel fuel. And I know people are looking at what's taking place with diesel fuel. We could see, we could see responses to this question change if the diesel prices remain as strong as some of the forecasts suggest they might uh, this winter, right? So that wraps up our discussion for today. Uh, for more details about the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, go to our website, which is purdue.edu slash agbarometer. Um, the next Ag Economy Barometer will be released on Tuesday, January 3rd. Um, and just three days after that, we will have the top farmer conference here uh, in West Lafayette at the Purdue's uh, Beck Agricultural Center. So you can come to that conference in person. We're, we're back in person this year. We also are offering a hybrid option. So if you want to attend virtually, you can do that as well. 
And information on that is available at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website, so you might want to check that out. We've got a, a great program lined up for January 6th. That's a Friday, the first, first Friday of that week, uh, first week of January, first full week of January. So with that, I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleague, Michael Langemar, and the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm James Mintert. Thanks for listening.